get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole, and this episode is about one of hip-hop's most unique MCs who has survived a few generations of the music industry, evolved into acting, producing, in addition to lending his powerful voice to major marketing initiatives. This MC I'm talking about is Common. The woman that represent hip-hop and how I first came into contact with hip-hop and how when I first came into contact with it, it was just like lovely. It was beautiful. Everything was original and right, natural. Right. Everything was fun. Now, I've done a lot of interviews with Common over the years, and we will talk about anything and everything. So, in this edition of the Backstory Podcast, I'll share some of those moments, like, for instance, who he was dating. Really good friends, you know, really, 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 really good friends. And, you know, I, I love she. I love what she represents as far as, you know, as a, as a black woman and, a, and also just as a, as a human being. And his beats with Ice Cube and Drake early in Drake's career. He thought I was really saying something about him, which I wasn't talking about him. I was talking about how, you know, how it's a lot of soft rap out there. And then he felt offended by that, and then he came out and said some, said some things. And um, then he did the Stay Scheming song, and I felt that was addressed to me, some of that. So Plus so much more. Let's learn a little bit about this brash, open, honest MC from Chicago, or as they say, the shy. And similar to another shy town MC named Kanye West, you'll notice that Common and West, who have been longtime friends, actually have a lot in common pun intended. I met Common very early in his career, and we actually connected because at the time that we met, we were both in college. Yo, Cole, Cole what's happening, Chief? How you feeling, man? Hey, man, look, it's always good to talk to you. See, a lot of people don't know that me and Com, like, we, are, we are, me and Com are B-boys anyway, but we go back to, like, the, you know, hip-hop's beginnings, and when Com was in college at FAMU, that's when you first came out, and that's actually the first time we met many, many years ago. And so it's always good, brother, to talk to you and, and see. I'm so proud of you and so proud of where you are in your career right now, man. It's just it's just amazing to see that growth, bro. So what's up, man? It's good to hear your voice. Oh, man, it's good to hear from you, man. It's just I want to say, yeah, we evolved together in many ways. It's good to know you rocking out there in Cleveland. And you know what we've been talking about, other projects that we both embarking on. That's right. Real good, man. Lonnie Carant, Jaman Shuka Rashid Lynn Jr. was born on March 13th, 1972 in Chicago, Illinois. Raised on the south side of town in a section called Calumet Heights. Now, way back in the day during the Civil Rights era in the early 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King, who mainly focused on Southern issues of race, Jim Crow laws, etc., decided to expand to other parts of the country. And the Chicago Freedom Movement was one of his first initiatives to focus on outside of the South. I learned a lot more recently because it's been the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. So there had been a lot of. Uh, documentaries, there was this assumption during this time that African-Americans' plight was a lot worse in the South than it was up North, and a lot of the focus of the Civil Rights era was strictly in the South. And Dr. King came to learn that 
the plight of African-Americans up north were just as bad as the South. And one of the first places up north that he decided to come to was Chicago. And he actually stayed with a local business owner in this area, Calumet Heights. This was a working class neighborhood that also had its share of gangs and crime and violence. And this is where Common, who was known as Rashid, grew up. His mother, Dr. Mahalia Ann Hines, was a hardworking woman who at one point managed several daycare centers that she owned. Furthering her education and then becoming a school teacher, eventually she became a principal and received her doctorate of education. Now, remember, I mentioned there's a lot in common between Kanye West and Common. Well, Kanye West's mother was a professor as well and stressed education, and they lived in a section of Chicago not too far from this. Common's father is the late Lonnie Lynn Sr. He was a local basketball star who would end up playing college ball, then professionally in the ABA. Now, back in the day, the ABA and the NBA were competing leagues, and the ABA had a rainbow-colored basketball where the NBA had that orange-looking basketball, and at some point they came together. But Lonnie was a great Chicago basketball legend and then ended up playing in college and then played in the ABA. Common's parents divorced when he was six, and his father moved across the country to Denver but was still very active in his life. In fact, his father helped get Common a job with the Chicago Bulls as a teenager during the Jordan years when Chicago was the center of the basketball universe. Common was a first-generation student of hip-hop and started rapping in middle school and then while attending luther high school in chicago he formed his first rap group called cdr which were the initials of each person in the crew Corey, dion and rashid dion happened to be the legendary producer no id now uh, in an earlier podcast on kanye west i talked about how kanye was sort of his mentor was no id and kanye was actually a kid who's a little bit younger than common in the studio when a lot of this music was being made. Um, and so the CDR group wasn't that great of a group, but they actually opened up for major rappers when they would come to Chicago. So Common would graduate high school and eventually get a scholarship to the prestigious HBCU Florida A&M, also known as FAMU. And this particular university is known for having one of the best marching bands like ever. They're called the Marching 100. So Common tells the story as a student at FAMU, he was with a friend who was smoking weed, and he thought about something his mother would always say, boy, you never use common sense, which in that moment kind of clicked, and that was his rap name, Common Sense. However, similar to numerous rappers who had a name they love, only to be forced to change it due to some sort of legal maneuver or lawsuit. Biggie Smalls was the notorious B.I.G.'s original name, but then there was this West Coast rapper named Biggie Smalls with a Z. So if you want to have a little fun right now, Google Cruising from Biggie Smalls and you'll see this scrawny little kid. Um, I think he's a white kid. He may be Hispanic who couldn't rap. Um, but because he was the first one to be called Biggie Smalls, he forced Biggie to change his name to the notorious B.I.G. So that's a little hip hop uh, trivia there. Um, the roots were originally called Square Roots, but... I remember this in Philadelphia. There was a local folk group who had the name Square Roots, so they shortened their name to The Roots. It happens. So let me take you to that time in hip-hop. It was 1992, 
And pretty much most of the music that was coming out in hip hop was coming from New York. As the largest city in the United States, it was home base and the originating place and the originating borough of the Bronx. That's where authentic hip hop came from. So there will be pockets of artists or crews that were developing like where I was kind of coming up in between New York and Philadelphia. Philadelphia had a bunch of artists who got major deals, but we were considered in Philly similar to New York, like literally 99 miles to the south of New York City. And Philadelphia had that same East Coast energy. So when an artist got signed out of Philly, it was almost kind of similar, just East Coast New York or a little bit out of New York. In the South, there were pockets of artists that were starting to blow. Luke, or Uncle Luke, as he was called, had an entire Miami crew of artists. Uh, and eventually, he would expand out of just the rap artists in the Florida area, and he signed a R&B group from Houston called H-Town, which had tremendous success. The other bigger market was Los Angeles, and they, at this time, were coming off the huge success of NWA and Eazy-E in the prior four years, and then Ruthless Records and all of the artists that they had signed there. And then, of course, there was The Chronic from Dr. Dre, which ushered in the domination of Death Row, which really flipped hip-hop upside down at the end of 1992. So... The rest of the country wasn't really on the radar for hip-hop. I kind of gave you like a little blueprint of what things were happening. However, an MC from the third largest city in the country was not something anybody was thinking about. They had yet to really have a superstar come out of Chicago. In fact, one of the first artists to sign a major record deal out of Chicago was Twista, who was actually the first artist that legendary label ball Steve Rifkin signed to his burgeoning hip-hop label called Loud Records. They would eventually have Wu-Tang, Mob Deep, uh, Big Pun. But the first artist they signed was Twista out of Chicago. Now, Twista's claim to fame at that point was that he was the Guinness Book World Record holder for the fastest rapper. Um, even though he was signed this deal with Loud Records, he really wouldn't have tremendous success for another 10 plus years on the strength of Kanye West who was blowing up in the early 2000s and who reached back and got with Twister and gave him uh, overnight celebrity and slow jams and the, the rest is kind of history. He had his biggest success later in his career, not early. So that's just a note to anybody that's trying to be an artist. Sometimes it just doesn't happen immediately and you kind of got to fight through it. Well, Twisted went, again, almost 12, 13 years before he really had tremendous success. So Twista signing from Chicago was a major deal for the city, hungry for an MC of their own because, again, New York, the South, L.A., everybody was starting to get their own artists, but Chicago hadn't really put nobody on the map like it's their artist. And to be honest, people were getting tired of artists just from L.A. and New York. Everybody wanted to have their own artists. I mean, in Seattle, Sir Mix-a-Lot, you know, my posse on Broadway, he was another one in the late 80s. He put Seattle on the map. Now, I mentioned this in other podcasts that I've done, but I kind of call this period the hip-hop renaissance. So after the early success of the 80s artists, the 90s hip-hop artists expanded all over the world. But what else was happening was the cerebral approach to the music. The lyrics were deeper, the music was more serious, the beats were harder and more infectious. I mean, most of the major labels stayed away from hip-hop. The early hip-hop labels were independent labels like Profile Records. Profile Records was the home of Run DMC. And Run DMC were superstars, but they were on an independent label. Special Ed was another artist on that label, or Rob Bass, It Takes Two. All of that came from a small boutique label, Profile. 
Wow. Or then there was Tommy Boy Records, who had Digital Underground, Naughty by Nature, Queen Latifah, even Def Jam when it first was a record label was an independent and the major started seeing what was happening. And then they started attaching themselves to these labels, providing more capital and distribution resources when the genre started to make a lot of money. Music was changing. Hip hop was dominating first week sales and it was nonstop and it was a nonstop record breaking time. I mean, rock and pop was starting to fade a little bit. And then there was a reemergence on the pop side with boy bands But the thing about it was hip-hop had this wild appeal to America. It was risque, it was cool, and at times dangerous, especially the death row time period and what was happening. I mean, Snoop was one of the biggest artists in the country in the early 90s, and he was basically up for a murder charge. But that really helped fuel him and kind of made him authentic in a scary type of way. So that that was what was happening with the genre. So a lot of kids gravitated to the artists and the energy that they were creating. So keep in mind what I'm telling you here. There were a lot of labels that just completely ignored hip hop and they were playing catch up. Hence, a label by the name of Relativity Records, which was an established label mainly for rock and heavy metal artists. And in the early 90s, they quickly ventured into hip hop. And one of the first hip hop signings was Common Sense. Now, during this time, they also signed Fat Joe, uh, the production rapping crew, the Beat Nuts, and even a teen rapper who, after a nice start to his career, would end up murdering somebody, then becoming a fugitive and going to jail. His name is Chi Ali. You should look that story up. All the labels at that time had rap departments, and they would build teams of reps, and they would make connections with DJs like me, because at that time, the program directors weren't really playing a lot of the music in rotation. It was really the mix show DJs, and the mix shows is where the music was getting its first introduction, and then the program directors would kind of like pick different songs um, that were blowing up to play in regular rotation. So if you were a mix show DJ or had your own show, you were like the king, because you would have all of these reps calling you constantly because they just wanted a slot on your show so that they can expose the artists that they had. So there were a lot of labels and a lot of artists at this time and everybody wanted in. I had a show initially that was only two hours, but I had to juggle taking calls from 15 to 20 people a week with a bunch of songs that they wanted me to play on my show. There was no BDS or media base to track who was playing what. They just wanted an official ad of a song so that they could report the song is receiving support at particular stations. And so when they market the song, the bigger the market, the bigger the station. When those collators are on these advertisements that these stations are playing it, it made for more people, specifically smaller markets, to want to jump on. Or a lot of people would look at certain stations that broke records and say, oh, they're playing this record. I probably need to play this record. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Common drops a song that is felt throughout the hip-hop community. But it's like, me, I felt like I had to say something about it because I wasn't liking the way it was going down. And the rap beef no one saw coming. That is, to me, a part of the battle sometimes. If, it, if it's a really a battle, then, you know, you got to make it clear who you're battling, you know. So I was telling you about how all the labels had reps, and those reps would make contact with people like me that were on the radio, And Relativity had a rep, and his name was Muhammad Ali. And I remember that because his name was Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, but this is what the guy's name was. He would call on me to play Relativity's music, and he was the first person to introduce me to Common's music. I mean, at that time, a rapper from Chicago, by the way, of Florida A&M, was kind of unheard of nationally. But Common signed a national deal, and this was his new label, and he was a student in college, and Muhammad wanted me to interview him on my show. 
So the Mix Show DJ community was close. We all knew each other, and we would connect several times a year at conventions, mainly the Gavin Convention, which was usually held in the San Francisco area. That was my first, you know, look into the Bay and just kind of feeling out the music there. And that's the first time I met Sway, who was who's still on the radio, but at that time was sort of like a god in the Bay Area on KMEL. My counterpart in Chicago at that time was a guy named Isidore Pink. An interesting name, but most knew him as Pink House or Rap Master Pink House. In Chicago at that time, they had a 24-hour hip-hop station, which we didn't really have any other places in the country. And they existed before Hot 97 in New York came about. And Pink House hosted the Yo! Show, and similar to what I was doing in Philly, he was introducing hip-hop to Chicagoland. And I remember him reaching out to me about Common and kind of co-signing him. Again, this was a big deal to get a major label signing out of that city. And so Muhammad brought Common to Philly in the fall of 1992 for an interview. So my initial opinions of Common was, first of all, he was just a nice guy. Very relatable and super conscious. He was a departure from the energy of hip-hop at that time, which was on the heels of N.W.A., was going into a much darker direction. He was also a college student. I mentioned that earlier. I had just graduated from Temple University in Philly, so we had just started talking about college. And initial hip-hop artists were not necessarily college students. Hip-hop initially was really just finding a way out of the ghetto, but the music was also resonating with college students, and in the 90s, you started to see a lot of artists who went to college. You know, for instance, Chubb Rock, who had a smash called Treat Em Right in 1990, went to Brown. That's an Ivy League school. Now, Chuck D and Flavor Flav from Public Enemy started at Adelphi University in Long Island. Guru from Gangstar went to Morehouse. Master Ace who um, was an artist at that time, went to Rhode Island. In fact, me and him would go back and forth because Rhode Island and Temple um, had a bit of a basketball rivalry. One of the most famous basketball players that ever came out of Rhode Island was Lamar Odom, who had a great NBA career. So my first meeting with Common was a few days before the release of his Can I Borrow a Dollar album. Um, And his first album was dope. You know, we accepted it, and the production from No ID was great. Um, And again, keep in mind, Kanye West was a mentee of No ID, and No ID is still producing to this day. He did Jay-Z's 444 album in 2017. The Beat Nuts also produced on this album, and the Beat Nuts, in my opinion, are unsung hip-hop producers. They had the best beats at that time. They did a song a few years into their career with Big Pun called Off the Books. You should Google that or go to YouTube and check it out. You'll get lost in that track. So Common's first single was Take It Easy. This No ID produced track with Common's squeaky bass voice, if that makes any sense. You'll have to listen to it to understand what I'm saying, his voice at that time. Common filmed a video on the south side of Chicago, and the city came out to support their new rap star. He would drop little nuggets of information, too, in his rhymes, which made him more of a conscious rapper. He wasn't just rhyming. He was, he was dropping a little knowledge at the same time. And again, he's leaning more on the conscious side of rap in the midst of the music segging more into the streets with artists talking about violence and misogyny. His second single was called Breaker 1-9, which No ID sampled in between the sheets way before Biggie did Big Papa. My favorite song off the album was Soul by the Pound. This song features samples from Tribe, Grand Poobah, Redman, as Common dropped different lines from popular songs and sayings at that time. As I listen to the album now, I can see the inspiration that No ID had on Kanye, who again around this time was in high school hanging around the studio while No ID was making these tracks. Can I Borrow a Dollar was a nice introduction to Common. 
It didn't sell a lot, but it enabled him to go around the country and make a name for himself. And after two years later, he would drop his sophomore album, Resurrection. Now, on the first album, he was Common Sense. And I mentioned earlier, however, he had to change his name to Common. So now he was Common. A sophomore project for an artist can be really make or break, especially after having a hit album. But for Common, his debut was just a taste of a new Chicago MC featuring the production style and no ID. The second album was kind of Common's coming out party. We talked a few days after its release in October of 1994. And he talks a little bit about this transition from the first album to the second album. Well, um, I had three singles from the first album, and, you know, they did good. Right. So then I just started working on the new album, which is called Resurrection. It's out right now. Mm-hmm. What happened, like, is I just grew from, from the first album, learned a lot about the business, and just grew mu- musically and stuff. I got into, like, reading and studying music more. Right. And I just came with this album, man. It's all about, like you said, Chicago tradition, that Chicago soul. Okay. I was at the crib writing this one, so it was, like, a lot better. First album, I was away at school in Florida, so right, right. I caught a nice vibe. Damn, Florida ain't out. Yeah, yeah, you okay. know. Okay. He also talked about the direction Resurrection was going into. Right. It goes around, come around. So it's coming back to life. So that's one symbolic meaning of it. But it also means that, um, like, I came to life, like I said, like, spiritually and musically. I started waking up to, like, a lot of things that's going on around me. I wasn't, I was asleep to a lot of things and wasn't being aware. Right. So, like, the flavors on the album is just really introspective on me. It's just, like, you get to know me better. You get to feel that soul, like, and I just, like... Flow with the rhymes, just kicking the real stuff, man. Whatever I feel, that's what that album is about. You know, in my experiences growing up in Chicago, which a lot of other people can relate to for the fact that every usually a lot of people had the same experiences everywhere, you know. Right, right, right. There's too much differences. Just maybe right. lean going all that. Black folks go through the same thing. Same you know? thing. Different all over the world go through the same stuff. Yes, sir. So one thing that you'll find from some of these clips that I'm playing from Common is his honesty. He has no problem stating an opinion. And I think musically, the first time we really heard that was this song called I Used to Love Her, with her being a metaphor for hip-hop and also standing for hip-hop in essence is real. It was a sobering inside look to where hip-hop was going. Remember I mentioned earlier, there was a little conscious rap, and then it kind of got N.W.A., Easy e West Coast, and Gangster all across the country. I Used to Love Her was Common, the conscious MC, was calling out the genre he fell in love with. You have to understand that this time period, what was happening, gangster rap was rapidly taking over. Guns, violence, degradation of women was the new norm. The consciousness of tribe, de la P.E., was fading, and the resentment of this new direction was being talked about loudly. Common was the megaphone with I Used to Love Her. Well, the ATR stands for hip-hop in its essence and real. And I used to love it, man. It's just what I feel right now or what I was feeling when I wrote it and what I feel now about hip-hop, man. I just used the her to represent the woman to represent hip-hop and how I first came into contact with hip-hop and how when I first came into contact with it, it was just, like, lovely. It was beautiful. Everything was original and right, natural. Right. Everything was fun. And then even throughout the changes when she went to be an Afrocentric, the hip-hop was in this pro-black state. Everything was still good. It was all good and, like, um, stuff was still kicking in the front. But then once, like, once really it got to, like, being real commercial, once really the white man got to it and started taking it to another level, wanting to advertise all types of things, right, big right. magazines doing things, and it got too big and started losing that natural, like, rawness, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, they did that to a lot of our music. 
But Jazz seemed like to be the only one that stayed like on the level of the underground right, and right, still right. like raw or whatever. Right. But it's like me, I felt like I had to say something about it because I wasn't liking the way it was going down. Okay. So everybody was coming phony and everything. Okay. Here's some of the lyrics to the song, and this was kind of like the shot heard round the western part of the United States. But then she broke to the West Coast. And that was cool because around the same time I went away to school. And I'm a man of expanding, so why should I stand in her way? She probably got her money in L.A. Talking about popping glocks, serving rocks, and hitting switches. Now she's a gangster rolling with gangster bitches. Always smoking blunts and getting drunk. Telling me sad stories. Now she only Fs with the funk. So not only was that kind of an overall diss to West Coast MCs, but G-Funk, which was kind of the beginnings of the Dr. Dre death row sound. This infuriated Ice Cube, who was one of the most popular West Coast MCs, who was now being labeled one of these so-called gangster rappers ruining hip-hop. The ensuing battle between Ice Cube and Common would get so harsh that Minister Louis Farrakhan had to get in the middle of it. Now, that following summer, Cube was a part of a new collaboration with MAC-10 and WC called the West Side Connection, sort of like a West Coast supergroup. And they would release several albums over the years. On one cut, they had this song called West Side Slaughterhouse, which was released as a single a year and a day after I Used to Love Her came out. And Cube says, used to love her, mad cause we after, pussy whip bitch with no common sense, hip hop started in the West, Ice Cube bailing through the East without a vest. Now, with that line, it was sort of like a diss towards the East or New York City. Since it was well known that hip-hop started in the Bronx, started in New York City, Ice Cube proclaiming that hip-hop started in the West didn't go over well in the East. If you were to do an autopsy of the East Coast-West Coast beef, this would be one of the embers to start that fire years later. It was bad enough that the paradigm had shifted to the West Coast, even though 95% of the business of hip-hop was handled and conducted in New York City. We liked Ice Cube, NWA, Eazy-E, but the arrogance of West Coast artists was creating negative energy in the East because, in all truthness, the East energy was fading a little bit at that time. But I'd also say it fueled the culture because the next wave of New York City MCs was definitely on another level. Nas, Wu-Tang, Biggie, they really brought the East back. So Common, a Chicago MC, was kind of like stuck in the middle of this smoldering fire. It was also during this time that Cube was facing his first adversity as an artist. Keep in mind, when things got hot for him in NWA, he left and came to New York City and was embraced by Chuck D and the Bomb Squad, and that was the energy behind Public Enemy, and that's the energy that did America's Most Wanted that really helped him become this superstar solo artist. He had also just did a big song with Das Effects, and they were a group out of New York that was having tremendous success, and Cube kind of leaned on that success with Check Yourself. So kind of add all that up with him proclaiming that hip-hop started in the West. And everybody in hip-hop is always uber-sensitive. You can't say nothing about nobody because, and now with social media, it's even worse. So keep in, keep in mind, back then we didn't have social media, but if you say something, people would exploit it. But I always say this, man, when you're on top, folks start picking you apart. And Common, the honest, conscious MC, decided to log a grenade into the fray. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Common builds a fan base with the ladies. I just wanted to let you know how much I love your music. Thank you. My son is singing along with me to the CDs. and We just love your music. I thank God for you. Then a little later, Hollywood comes a calling and Common dives in head first. I'm getting into also not only, you know, as an actor, but I want to get into producing films and stuff like that. So we left off with Common and Ice Cube 
battling over Cube's distaste of the song I Used to Love Her. And by the way, it's kind of ironic that in the future, these two will be, both become actors and eventually work together on a film that was shot in Chicago. So back to that moment. A very popular Ice Cube puts a song out, West Side Slaughterhouse, against Common, without naming him, which historically I hate this about hip-hop. It's always such a weak part of hip-hop. If you got beef, you should say who you have beef with. But unfortunately, these guys are always dropping subliminals, but not Common. And remember, Ice Cube dropped No Vaseline a few years before that against Eazy-E, N.W.A., and Dr. Dre. So he wasn't no punk, but he still dropped a subliminal at Common, which was actually tame compared to the clapback from Common when he released a song called The Bitch in You, where Common unleashed on Cube's betrayal of East Coast supporters, and he called Cube out by name. Here's some of the lyrics. A bitch nigga with an attitude named Cube stepped to the con with a feud. Now what the F I look like dissing the whole coast? You ain't made shit dope since America's most. Hypocrite, I'm filing your death certificate. Slanging bean pies and St. Ives in the same sentence. Should have repented on the 16th of October. Get some beats besides George Clinton to rock over. Rap career is over. Better off acting. I'm sure at the time, and I don't know this for a fact, that Q was probably shocked how this up-and-coming MC from Chicago would directly come at him with daggers. So Common would perform this song throughout the country, revving up his fans. He even performed this song on the West Coast. Now, this thing was starting to become a problem. The energy was getting darker around both camps. There were a couple of incidences. Um, and this was all a reaction to the back and forth between these two songs. And Common's not that dude anyway. Um, but Ice Cube had people around him. It was just a lot of stuff going on at that time. Now, Minister um, Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam is actually based in Chicago, and No ID and Ice Cube were both in the nation. In addition to this moment, there was this underlying frustration happening from artists outside of New York that New York City was a bit snobbish to rappers from other places. And some of these artists that weren't from New York were having all the success around the country, but they weren't getting any love in New York. So Minister Farrakhan, fearing that things were out of control, had a sit down with prominent rappers from both coasts in Chicago. And it was at one of these meetings that Cube and Common pieced things up. And I told you earlier, they both obviously became actors. And in later years, they would do uh, they would do one of the barbershop movies that would take place in Chicago. Common is universally considered a good dude. So not many rap beefs associated with him during his career. A few years ago in 2012, though, there was some tension between him and Drake. And at this time, Drake was just totally ascending as the biggest rapper, um, the biggest up and coming rapper at that time. And it was over some lyrics that Drake thought Common was saying about him. And we talked about the Ice Cube situation and the Drake situation. Hey. Now, let, now let's get down to some hip hop because um, when I remember uh, when I first met you, what I always dug about you was that you was always a real cat. And you was in college when you started rapping. You know, a lot of cats at that time wasn't going to college, but you were and you was repping your school, Florida A&M. Yes, sir. So, so you understand hip-hop. And I remember you made I Used to Love Her, and Ice Cube took, got some feelings over that and then kind of came at you because he thought you was kind of dissing West Coast hip-hop. And then you came back with the bitch in you and just shut it down, son. Yeah. And now we come, we come like 20 years later, and the hottest rapper in the game is Drake, and you and him going back and forth. What the hell? What, what was that about? You know, it was a part of the hip-hop battle also. It was more one of those things where, you know, he, he felt a certain way about a song I did called Sweet, and um, that, that's off the album. And uh, he thought I was really saying something about him, which 
I wasn't talking about him. I was talking about how, you know, how it's a lot of soft rap out there. And then he felt offended by that, and then he came out and said some, said some things. And um, then he did the Stay Scheming song, and I felt that was addressed to me some of that. So. And you said his name, son. That is, to me, a part of the battle sometimes. If, it, if it's a really a battle, then, you know, you got to make it clear who you're battling, you know, because if not, it it could be mistaken. Like, you could take you could be saying something like, I I hate when he said some things on state scheme, and it could have been to somebody else, but it felt like it was to me. So right, right. I had to say, hey, man, I, I really feel like this is to me, so I'm going to address it. There was a rumor that you guys had an altercation at the Grammys. Did that happen or not happen? No, that was a rumor. We we actually had a, a good conversation, and, you know, everything is is peace. There's no beef. It's, it's, the battle is even over. It's like, right, hey, right. It's like, all oh, love, man, like you say, he, he, he a, he a great artist, and he continuing to do his thing, and I'm, I'm just going to keep doing mine. I hate the fact that rappers, when they talk about one another, they don't ever say a name. And it's like, no, say the name. Like, yeah. be, be, and you see, you ain't never held back. Whenever it was, you was coming at somebody, you will always say that name. And I respect you as an MC for that because these cat, that's what makes you a soft rapper. And you could be the hardest rapper in the game, in the game right now, and they be throwing subliminals. And that's the worst. I think it's like boxing man you know if you go get in the ring then you gotta just box you gotta you know know your opponent there's no need to be dodging who you're saying or like i mean if you got to really something against them don't get me wrong people use artists like you might see a, some artists doing some things and, and you might not be wanting to start a beef with them but you might use them as an example you know like people be like rappers be doing this they they sometimes are talking about somebody but not really, but right. but when you really want to, you know, like when you're trying to drop them subliminals and you really want got something against somebody, I ain't that subliminal guy. I'm ready. I'm more like, hey, man, let, let's let's get this out in the open. Let's go ahead and That's get right. it to the ring. This beef, no doubt, catapulted Common into another level. The song I used to love her was an iconic song which inspired a movie. Now, I'll tell you a little bit of a connection I have to this. So one of the guys that I came up with in Philadelphia, his name was Mike Elliott. He used to do a hip-hop video show in Philly back in the day called Crush Videos where he would host and mix videos. It was really groundbreaking. He would parlay this show and this opportunity and his foot in the door into other jobs within the hip-hop industry, including working for The Source magazine and being one of the producers for the very popular Source Award which is really the only big main hip-hop get-together every year, which was televised. Now, bringing all the hip-hop energy together at one place would also become a magnet for drama. So one year it was in Pasadena, because I remember, because I was there, and there was actual fights happening in the audience. And it got so bad that they had to cancel the award show. Now, remember, they're filming this for television, and they had to cancel it, go back in, and record stuff without an audience. After the stress of that award show, Mike Elliott quit the source and followed his passion to become a screenwriter. He loved hip-hop, and the first screenplay that he wrote was Brown Sugar, and it was inspired by the song I Used to Love Her. Common was also featured on the soundtrack to that movie on a song that he did with then-girlfriend Erica Badu called Love of My Life. We talked about his influence on Brown Sugar. Mike Elliott told me that that's, that movie was inspired by a song that I did called I Used to Love Her. Right. Brown Sugar was, you right. know, talking about the love of hip-hop. Mike Elliott also penned a movie called Just Right and produced it, and this was Common's first leading role starring alongside Queen Latifah and Paula Patton. A little bit later in this podcast, we'll talk about this movie. So Resurrection was 
a much better album than Common's first album. He follows it up with One Day It Would All Make Sense, which actually took around three years to make. And during the making of this album, Common became a father for the first time, which, of course, changed him. And this album was delayed as he embraced fatherhood. After the birth of his daughter, he returned to finish recording it. This was a very soulful album from Common. In addition to becoming a parent, he was also expanding his horizons and surrounding himself with a lot of conscious creative forces. This would be the last No ID produced album for several years. The One Day It All Makes Sense album featured production from Quest Love and Black Thoughts from The Roots, De La Soul, Erica Badu, and a touching soul-infused song featuring Lauren Hill titled Retrospect for Life. Lauren was coming off the tremendous success of the Fuji Score album the previous year and was pregnant herself while recording the classic Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which would come out a year later. Retrospect for Life was almost like a tease of the Lauren Hill solo album that was about to come. It was a beautiful song produced by James Poyser, who was a fellow Philadelphia native and now a member of The Roots, in addition to No ID. This was one of my favorite common songs, and the video featured actress Nabouche Wright. It was about pregnancy and the choices a young couple faces. The song sampled the classic A Song From You from the late Donny Hathaway, and Lauren on the hook took it to another level, re- recreating Stevie Wonder's emotional Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer. This combination gave Common another level of respect with his female fan base. Rappers didn't show much sensitivity or real emotion. This song, though, was relatable to many who were going through a pregnancy at a young age and the internal debate of whether to keep the baby or not. This was Common's most successful album up until that point, selling over 250,000 copies. It would also usher a new era for him as he moved from Chicago to New York and signed with MCA Records. He would also join a musical collective called the Soulquarians, which oozed creative energy with the likes of D'Angelo, Questlove, Jay Dilla, and future Roots member James Poyser, who all shared the Aquarius sign. Common joined this collective, as well as Erica Badu, Q-Tip, Mostef, Talib Kweli, Bilal, and Raphael Sadiq, amongst others. This was a lot of creative energy, and out of this movement, several really good quality albums were born, like D'Angelo's Voodoo album, which came out in 2000, The Roots, Things Fall Apart, Erica Badu's Mama's Gun, and Common's first MCA release, Like Water for Chocolate, recorded at the legendary Electric Lady Studios, which were designed for Jimi Hendrix as a place he could record in New York. Sadly, he died two months before it opened, but so many great albums following that were recorded, and Common recorded this album there. This will be Common's commercial breakthrough album. The Roots would have theirs as well soon after, all stemming from this collaborative. Production was overseen by Questlove and Jay Dilla. He was even able to get the great DJ Premier to do a song. Released in March of 2000, the second single that garnered a lot of airplay and response was called The Light, in which, similar to the Retrospect for Life song with Lauryn Hill, this song, The Light, featured a Donny Hathaway sample. This album would go on to sell over 750,000 copies. Common continued to grow as an artist. The following album, Electric Circus, was released in 2002. The album cover was inspired by the classic Midnight Marauders album cover from A Tribe Called Quest, which featured a lot of top rappers at that time on the cover. Common also worked with Pharrell and Mary J. Blige and Jill Scott on this project. He was also becoming a sex symbol and have a loyal female following. Here's an example of a female fan calling in to speak to him. I just wanted to let you know how much I love your music. 
Thank you. My son is singing along with me to the CDs. We just love your music. And I thank God for you because, like, your music is just so refreshing. And our, our community, the hip-hop community, is just suffocating from all this garbage that we hear every day. And to listen to you and actually be able to learn something from your music, it's, it's so beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad you you could play it, play it with your son. You know, that's that's why I be wanting the music to touch, like, the kids and the older people, you know, all ages, man. Because I, I remember being able to hear songs with, you know, that my father may have played or just, you know, songs that older people around me would play right. and we could share them together. So I'm glad you could play the music like that. And we go keep striving to put out good music. Come Close, his Neptune's produced single featuring Mary J. Blige was the biggest song on the Electric Circus album, which was creatively praised, but commercially only sold 300,000 and coming off of an album that sold 750,000, some would say this was a disappointment. After this album, it was a turning point for Common as things were quickly changing musically and a kid who grew up in Chicago, a mentee of no ID, in the studio watching Common be one of the first artists to achieve success out of Chicago, becomes a super producer himself and artist and now links back up with Common. In this time period from 2002 to 2004, we see the ascension of Kanye West as a producer and then quickly on his debut album, College Dropout, where he featured Common on the Get Em High song. Kanye was always a fan of Common. Keep in mind, he's a kid in middle school and high school watching No ID, his mentee, work with Common, who becomes the first big rap star out of Chicago. So it made all the sense in the world with Common's label going through reorganization MCA Records at that time was absorbed into Geffen Records, and Kanye signed Common to his good music label, and it was distributed through Geffen. The album entitled B, released in the spring of 1995, was produced mainly by Kanye West, but also Jay Dilla. It was one of Common's best albums musically and commercially. The album was soulful, had mesmerizing beats, lyrics for days. It was a conscious Common with the best tracks of his career, led by Go, The Food, testify and they say it was quite the comeback for common who dabbled on the acting side starting with his videos the videos for this album had a lot of detail you should go and search for the testify video which is more like a movie featuring taraji p henson who shortly after he started to date and we'll talk about that coming up common was always a lyrical MC and always very conscious and a deep thinker. I remember one of my callers giving him a certain nickname. Because, you know, I, I like to analyze your lyrics, you know, Chi-Town's Nas or whatnot. You know, you got to <laughs> wow. listen to them three or four times to get through all the all the meaning. Yeah. Chi-Town's Nas was expanding his career by venturing into movies. He did a few TV roles, including at that time, the number one show for black women, which was called Girlfriends, which starred Tracy Ellis Ross, who was now in Blackish. But movies is where his brand expanded. His first full feature role was Smoking Aces. He was then in a highly anticipated American gangster film, which starred Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe, which featured other rappers in serious acting roles. T.I. and RZA were in this movie as well. This was his first high-profile movie, and it would open up a stream of movies and television appearances. In 2010, he had his first starring role in Just Right, opposite Queen Latifah and Paula Patton. We talked about the significance of the role and him being a leading man. Man, I'm so due. You understand? I'm really excited about it. The film is like, it's my first lead role, and it's starring Queen Latifah and, and featuring like Pam Grier and Paula Patton and 
and Felicia Rashad, and also got you know some of the NBA guys. I play NBA ball player for the New Jersey Nets. They actually could have used me this year, right? But <laughs> <laughs> I played with. The, but the movie got uh, it got uh, uh, Dwayne Wade and, and Dwight Howard in and Rajah Rondo. So it's it's really a great little romantic comedy. It's always good to see you know black films come out, man. And the guy that wrote it is a good friend of mine. He actually's from Philly, Mr. Mike Elliott. He wrote yeah. and produced it. And, and it's great because it really, like, gives you this opportunity, man, to start. Because you've been in a whole bunch. And actually, you're in this other movie that, that's coming out this weekend the, the with um, Tina Fey, right? Yeah, it's called Date Night. It's coming out Friday. It's starring Tina Fey and, um, and um, Steve Carell. You know, it got Mark Wahlberg. It's a fun. That's a real fun movie, too. But like you said, your man, Mike Elliott, man, he's a great writer. And what he did with, with Just Right, I mean, actually, man, it's just a, 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 I seen the movie, man. I felt like real really proud and just excited about it, man. We we going out there cold. We doing straight up promotions. Like, like we did a mixtape for the film, like with, with Tastemaker Music. You know, it's called the Just Right Mix. Right, we, right. We doing music. Latif and I got a song for it. So we really, I really believe in this movie and I'm excited about it, man. And plus, it was a dream for me to play an NBA ball player, man. Like, you know, that was one of my dreams anyway as a shorty. So. No, man, that was, was cool. And so now yeah. I, just, I see the premiere and it's, and it's basically, there's some romantic things between you and Queen Latifah. That's like hip-hop royalty right there, bro. You, 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 what was it like just like kissing Queen Latifah? Oh man, she she is the queen, man. She a beautiful woman and and a, and, a, and a sexy woman too, man. And, and point blank, it's like this is like a story for for women that that may not be quote unquote in the Hollywood sense of sensibility of beauty. Just you know, like women, beauty comes in so many different shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think Latifah represents that. And this is her that story of that woman that you know who at one point may not be considered the, the beautiful woman by by many, but at some point she gets she gets the prince. Or I don't want to tell the story all the way, but it's definitely a, a little something there, you know? As his star continued to ascend, Common was a sex symbol, and the ladies were not shy in their public affection of him. Starting in the early 2000s, Common had several high-profile relationships, one with Erica Badu, which started as a creative union in the Soul Quarian Collective, but then became a serious relationship. Now, she had had several high-profile relations with other rappers herself. I remember her effect on him. It was sometime in the early 2000s. I don't remember what year, but I happened to be in Chicago for an event that R. Kelly was having, and I was walking out of my hotel, and Common was at the valet with his daughter. And I remember him having yarn sandals on, and I remember like teasing him about it, in future interviews, I was we laughed about it. Kanye had a few jokes on Common at that time, too. Now, Common also dated Taraji P. Henson, who was in this Testify video, who had a lot of film and TV roles at that time, but had just recently starred in John Singleton's Baby Boy and then the Academy Award-nominated Hustle & Flow. So she was kind of ascending, and they were dating at that time. This was way before Empire. And they had a long-term serious relationship. Another one of his high-profile relationships is with tennis star Serena Williams. Anytime I would have an interview with Common, we would talk about whoever he was dating at that time. In this particular case, it was right after Serena Williams had an incident where she threatened to shove a tennis ball down someone's throat, and we talked about his relationship and joked about that moment. Man, we we, we really, really good friends, you know, (laughs) really, really, really really good friends. And, you know, I, I, I I love what she represents as far as you know as a, as a black woman and a, and also just as a, as a human being and uh man i just you know 
I, you know, Serena, man, come yeah, on, man. I know, she's a brother. So, sexy woman. Yeah, come but on. You, you get to go on the beach and stuff with her, man. What? Oh, man. So y'all, hey, y'all. man. <laughs> that's some of the. That's some of the best. Yo, that's some of the best things in life. <laughs> Enjoy the beach. You know, be out with it. Like, how often? Do, how often do you tell yourself, man, I love hip hop? Because hip hop been <laughs> taking you far, brother. I'm taking me far, brother. I'm out surfing. I'm out surfing with, with you know, a beautiful sister like that. So, man, you know, I'm just. Basically enjoying life, and, and, and you know, Serena and I are definitely good, good companions, and you know, we just growing. At one point, I started working in Cleveland, and I was on the air there, and we had a really bad school shooting in one of the suburban schools, and we created uh, a special show, like a talk show, to talk about it and get the community involved. And I remember I reached out to Common to speak with the people, and of course, Common picks up the phone and calls back immediately and delivers. I just want to say that I think and I believe that um, for us to get our young people and for young people to feel better about themselves, we got to give them opportunities to pursue what they love to do, dreams, create, be creative. And and as young people, you have to know, we have to know that, that man, we are God's children. Like when you look at any other human being, you got to recognize that's a reflection of God and that's also a representation of you too. And if you want your future to be great, then you don't want to destroy anybody else's or take it, take away from anybody else's. And I think one of the most important things we can do in our communities, you know, whether it's black, white, whatever, is instill like some type of self-esteem, self-love, um, respect for life, and most of all, just spirituality, a belief in the higher power and being held accountable to that. I think those are some of the most important things we can do. Sadly, this continues to be a huge problem in our country. It's only getting worse. And I specifically remember this part of the interview asking Common to speak to that hopeless teen that's on the edge. You feel like there's nobody there. Find something creative that you can do, artistic, athletic, just to get out that energy. I mean, we all go through it. Man, when I'm frustrated on the days, I love getting to, to go to exercise, go to the weight room and play some ball. just help take my mind off things or, or listen to some good music or create some good music. All of it helps, man. And I mean, definitely going... To God, man, and know that everyone great out there has been through something. Everybody. you To reach greatness, you have to go through some struggles. So if you feel like you're in the worst situation ever, know that you can be in that great of a situation if you just believe and work through it, you know, and keep believing. Common would go on to record several more albums, and there was even talk of him and Q-Tip coming together to form a group called The Standard, but that never happened. He continues to act and produce and has a new career as a voiceover artist. It wouldn't be uncommon, pun intended, to hear a national advertising campaign with Common's powerful voice standing out. Well, that's the story of Common. Thank you all for listening to the Backstory Podcast. If you have a chance, catch up on some of the old episodes. For instance, we've got Jay-Z, we've got LL, Nas, Run DMC, The Notorious B.I.G., And the last one I did was with super producer Kenny Gamble. And coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, Janet Jackson. Doing other uh, writers, producers work, but doing something of your own, expressing uh, the ins and outs of of your own life and, Mm -hmm. and, and having a voice, having something that you wanted to express what was going on with you. Thanks for listening. I'm Colby Cole. Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. 
support on the Backstory Bonus level.